Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 99, released on December 12th, 2018. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice today. That includes iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. So today we are going to talk about e-scooters in Madrid, about artificial intelligence in Europe, about the terrible side of the crypto space, also about inclusivity and diversity in tech industry, and more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Yaroslav Ozhnyuk, the co-founder and CEO of PetCube, a Ukrainian-founded company that's now headquartered in the United States. We're also going to talk about upcoming events and share books and stories and whatnot that we have come across recently. I am your host, Andrei Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Hi, Natalie. How is it going there? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well, trying to stay warm here in Edinburgh. But I think the more interesting story for this week is we'd love to hear more about your time at Slush. You just got back from there. What did you enjoy about it? What were the interesting startups that you found? What are some of your key takeaways? Now, let's see. So I came back from Slush a few days ago, still kind of recovering. It was it was great. It was great as ever. I always enjoy uh, coming to Finland in general. I always enjoy coming to Slush. It's a great uh, conference. I'm really happy that uh, the organizers uh, seem to have capped the number of people uh, that can be there. And uh, unlike uh, some other conferences like uh, Web Summit, for example, they're not really that interested in growing it to 50. 60, 70, 80,000 of people. So I think the current uh, size is just right. So I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And still, I didn't uh, manage to see like half of the people I wanted to see because it's still pretty hard uh, to go to every talk, to see everybody, to go to every event and so on. I also had uh, quite a few interviews. So uh, in this podcast, we are going to include uh, some of the stuff uh, that I recorded uh, at Slush within the next uh, the next few days. I almost didn't see any talks, uh, just a little bit, uh, but uh, for sure I spent uh, spent a great time there. As for the startups, let's see. So I talked to the founder of a startup uh, that has raised more than 20 million euros uh, for a fishing app which is pretty interesting. Talked to another startup that is doing an uh, sort of uh, artificial intelligence GP, so uh, healthcare and accessibility thereof, which is also very interesting. I had a few less uh, podcast applicable conversations uh, with uh, uh, with some other people, with some ecosystem builders. I also noticed that there was supposed to be a uh, keynote uh, from uh, one of the representatives of uh, Lime, uh, the big e-scooter company, uh, but apparently it was uh, pulled out uh, last moment after what happened uh, before that at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt Berlin when uh, uh, the company was uh, called out for uh, working with the uh, scandalous uh, 
public relations uh, company called Definers. So, but I also had a conversation uh, with uh, with people from Lime that was an off the record one, but still very interesting. And I do hope that uh, more news uh, we will be able to talk about uh, in the future. And I will also talk about uh, e-scooters uh, in my story today. I just can't uh, can't have enough of it. Going back to Slush, so there was also this announcement of the State of European Tech report by Atomico, which I think was uh, quite interesting, a lot of uh, interesting numbers to see. Also the diversity and inclusion uh, toolkit, which uh, as far as I remember our agenda you are going to be talking about later today. So a yeah. lot of stuff from Slush actually coming to this podcast one way or the other. Uh, then uh, uh, what uh, the school, the tech, uh, the, the coding school, Hive Helsinki, This, uh, as far as I remember, this is one of the franchises of sorts uh, of the French uh, school called the uh, 42. It's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. I saw another one like this uh, in Belgium, in uh, Brussels, it's called 19. Uh, it's an interesting concept, but I'm not entirely sold here just because it's sort of a peer-to-peer -peer learning. So there is uh, pretty little space to actually talk to people who are much better than you and understand uh, much better what uh, what to do and how things work uh, in the uh, in the programming so i do i do agree that it's like learning by doing in coding right uh, but then it's uh, it's really good when you learn from someone next to you who is much better than you and not necessarily from your peers or uh, video lectures on the internet so I, I don't know um, if you saw this, but when the announcement for Hive Helsinki came out, a lot of people on Twitter were quite critical because of the age limit. So the program only serves um, at the moment ages 18 to 30. And there was a lot of feedback being like, what's up with this age limit? And it, it kind of marred the, the announcement a little bit. Was did you hear any any conversation about that at the event? Not at the event per se, but I knew that the limit is there, and I talked about it before in one of the interviews that we actually ran on the podcast, uh, one with uh, Corinne Vigro from uh, TomTom Tom from here from Amsterdam, because she also opened a school uh, of the same uh, type uh, in Amsterdam, and uh, there was also this limit. And I actually asked her what uh, what the actual hell and why is uh, uh, why is the limitation even in place? And as far as I understand, uh, this might be something that uh, forty two. Uh, kind of implies uh, for its franchise. But what uh, what Corinne Vigro told me in the interview was that uh, this was only for the first batch and uh, afterwards uh, they would start accepting applications uh, from uh, people of any age. So I'm not I'm not sure if it's the same uh, for uh, for Hive in Helsinki, but I would hope so because the limitation of uh, from 18 to 30 kind of makes no sense at all for me. Okay, so in, in your impression, how did Slush this year compare to earlier years? Because you've had the chance to go a few times now. Yeah, I think this was I think this was my third slush. I might want to recheck uh, in my inbox, but I think it's the third time. And what's great about it is that it's not that different. So I re it's really the way I like it, and it uh, kind of stays the same way uh, for me every year, uh, which is actually something I come to expect. So you see obvious incremental uh, improvements in uh, quality in terms of um, uh, both uh, technical uh, things like uh, lighting and sound and stages and planning and all that, uh, but al also you see more interesting 
at least judging by the titles, uh, keynotes and things like that. But there is no, there are no big changes. And I guess this is the way that I'm totally okay with for now. So it is predictably good. And uh, this is exactly how I like it. And, and for next year, is there something that you would like to see Slush bring to the program to step it up an, another level? I'm not really sure, but I guess it might already make sense to kind of uh, start reducing uh, the number of uh, events and talks that are going on in parallel, just because it's already pretty hard to uh, choose things and uh, the program is very, very much uh, saturated. And also you have all this uh, semi-official stages uh, created by the companies and pavilions, and sometimes you want to go there. So I guess it might make sense to kind of focus on uh, uh, less uh, content that would be more interesting to a, a bigger part of the of the audience uh, coming to the conference. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. So we'll see if it's if it's going to if anyone from the slash organization is going to hear it. If you are listening to this, uh, people from Slush, I love you very much. I respect you very much and I appreciate what you're doing. If you want any more feedback, uh, please feel free to write me at andri at tech.eu. Now, okay, let's move on to the stories. And as I promised, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, e-scooters. Like, f- for the record, I don't really like e-scooters. Uh, I don't really think it's exactly the way uh, the mobility is going to be looking like in the future. But it is an extremely interesting space to watch. And I'm really enjoying uh, reading more and more uh, news about what's happening there. So last week, uh, the main place, I guess, to watch was uh, Madrid. And what happened there is that the city authorities revoked operating licenses of all three e-scooter companies working there at once. And that's uh, Voy Technologies from Sweden, uh, Lime from the US, and uh, Wind Mobility from uh, Berlin, Germany. Uh, all three companies were given 72 hours to remove all their scooters from the streets of the city. And the reason was uh, that none of the companies managed to comply with a new regulation regarding e-scooters that went into force on October 24th, so like more than a month ago. Uh, in a nutshell, what the new regulation is, is that uh, it says that the operators uh, have to restrict areas in Madrid in which e-scooters can be used. In particular, it's now not allowed to use them in pedestrian areas of the city, and also it's not allowed to use them on the roads uh, where the speed limit is higher than uh, 30 kilometers per hour. So kind of reasonable, I guess. And theoretically, as far as I understand all three companies have uh, the technical possibility to do what they were asked to do and it's really a big surprise for me uh, that uh, no one actually uh, did it at all. Uh, Lime now has already issued a statement that it is removing the scooters from the city as it was bid and I guess that the others are on it as well. Also it's not yet clear uh, whether Lime, Voy and Wind uh, will refund the money that their customers in Madrid had on their accounts so this uh, still remains to be seen. Uh, what else? All three companies uh, also said that uh, they are talking to the city authorities in Madrid right now and trying to get new licenses. Uh, but this process, according to reports, uh, are, is going to uh, take a few more weeks and it's going to be the earliest uh, in mid-January. It is also said that uh, Voy, Wind and Lime already met up uh, with the authorities uh, in Madrid and expressed their willingness to cooperate and also requested some technical clarifications as to to what exactly the city wants them to do. Uh, 
So all in all, it looks like Madrid being one of the more popular markets for e-scooter companies, uh, it can become the pioneer in how to properly regulate uh, these uh, things, at least in Europe, of course. Uh, the city has now also, uh, as part of that uh, directive uh, from October 24, uh, it put a limit on the total number of electric and shared scooters at 10,000. So no more than 10,000 shared electric scooters can be operated in the city of Madrid, and also there are additional limits for each neighborhood. Uh, so each neighborhood can have from 145 to 925 uh, scooters deployed. And here it would also be interesting to look at the similar experience uh, from the city of San Francisco. Back in the summer, in August, uh, the U.S. city put even stricter limits on the e-scooters by only giving uh, two one-year licenses uh, to companies called uh, Skip and Scoot. Uh, omitting uh, Bird and Lime and all the bigger companies. Uh, and it allowed uh, Skip and Scoot to deploy a maximum of 625 scooters per company in the first six months. After that initial period, uh, the companies could be allowed to increase the fleet to 2,500 per company, but that's still up to the authorities and their decision. So basically, even if this uh, goes through, it's still going to be 5,000 scooters maximum in San Francisco versus 10,000 scooters maximum in Madrid. Anyway, I'm pretty happy with uh, all these uh, developments uh, going on right now. I'm pretty happy that the industry of uh, e-scooters and, uh, for that matter, any other dockless personal mobility vehicles like uh, bicycles or whatever it is, is not really becoming a total mess in Europe. And I do hope that uh, a way can be found to make it a safe and accessible alternative to cars in uh, modern cities without littering the sidewalks too much. So that's that's my take on this. Andre, I really appreciate your love-hate relationship with the e-scooter market in Europe because you're really finding a number of exciting things happening in this space. And I'm just curious from a, a user perspective, how Madrid's regulations would work if you were riding the scooter and you somehow come up to a pedestrian zone, would the scooter just shut off? How would it prevent you from from moving into that area? I mean, technically it's possible, but I imagine there's some safety situation that you'd have to get around to make that feasible. I guess this is exactly what uh, uh, the scooter companies are talking uh, to the authorities about. But I mean, with geofencing, as far as I understand, you are able to do exactly that. But it doesn't mean uh, that the scooter will just abruptly stop when it enters the the zone uh, where it's not allowed to go. It's just that the electric motor uh, will not function anymore. It, so it will basically become a mechanical push scooter. And this, I think, is like is, is, is a good way, a good thing to do. So this, this probably makes a lot of sense. The only problem that I can see here is that there is still no way to not allow the scooters to get onto uh, sidewalks. But yeah, that's, uh, that, I guess, is up to the city authorities to uh, enforce, uh, enforce uh, themselves. So it'll be very interesting to see how they get around it, because Madrid is a huge market for these companies, and I imagine they'll, they'll want to have um, entry there again. Yeah, it seems like uh, the warmer uh, the country and the, and the city is, uh, the, the more these uh, companies uh, really want to get uh, into, into it as a market. And also, like it must be said that all these uh, scooter companies are now 
promoting themselves as being very much authority friendly and talking to the municipal authorities uh, before doing anything. So this is really, really, really a big surprise for me that uh, they waited for so long uh, that uh, the city had to revoke uh, the licenses. Anyway, let's move to the next uh, story of the day. Uh, Natalie, tell us more about artificial intelligence in Europe. Yeah, so earlier this year, the European Commission adopted an official strategy on artificial intelligence. So it called for a stronger coordination between states on developing AI technologies and this common goal to make Europe the world's leading region for developing and deploying ethical AI. So this was a really noble goal and, and something that in some respects was long overdue, especially as Europe lags considerably behind the U.S. and Asia when it comes to spending and investment in AI, something that we outlined in our recent report, Seed the Future. So while Europe has some of the most successful and prominent companies in this space, including DeepMind and Benevolent AI um, from the U.K., overall spending in, on AI in Europe remains limited. So according to McKinsey, um, a report done earlier this year, European investment in AI from 2016 was between three and four billion US dollars. But in the United States at the same time period, it, they were spending $23 billion. So it's quite, quite a large comparison there. And it's not just spending, it's also the vision. So Germany only adopted an AI action plan this summer. So last week, the commission presented their plan for to put their new AI strategy into action. So this plan has four main pillars, and I kind of want to walk you through um, some of the different um, elements of those. So the first is to maximize investment through partnerships. The commission outlines a few partnerships they're working to implement, and the first requires all EU member states to have an AI strategy, which will feed into this European-level discussion. Next, they will support new research collaboration between university and the private sector. In addition, they want to create a new AI scale-up fund to support startups in AI and, and blockchain from the early to scale-up stage. You got to get the blockchain in there. The final component of this pillar aims to better connect the world leading centers of AI in Europe. So the commission is going to work to develop different AI innovation hubs around the continent to help encourage the uptake of AI in different sectors of the economy. So the second pillar of this new strategy, one that I'm particularly excited about, will create a common European data spaces to share data seamlessly across borders in full compliance with GDPR. So by mid-2019, they expect to launch a support center uh, for to give advice about data sharing and how different organizations can share data appropriately. The third pillar of the plan will help to nurture skills and facilitate lifelong learning in AI, um, really geared to addressing shortages of ICT professionals. So the commission, they really spoke about uh, working to ensure that AI will be taught in schools from the earliest levels. Um, and they also want to upskill workers whose jobs might be impacted by, by AI. Furthermore, they want to encourage more countries in Europe to utilize the European Blue Card program um, to ensure that ICT professionals can move seamlessly um, to take up all of these new AI jobs. The final pillar of the program seeks to support the ethical and trustworthy development of AI in Europe. So this is the first time I've seen such a policy that's directly pointed at addressing the ethical questions of these technologies and the perspective bias decision-making around AI and the usage of big data. 
So the European Commission has convened a group of experts from industry, academia, from different thought leaders to develop some ethical guidelines for AI. And an early version of these guidelines is expected to be published soon. Um, Hopefully, they said by the end of this year, with the ambition that this code of ethics will be brought to the global stage. And what that will do is position Europe as a world thought leader on artificial technology, and it works to elevate some of the challenges associated with AI, um, and it helps hold um, users of these technologies accountable to addressing some of the ethical concerns here. And it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out, but certainly acknowledging some of the ethical issues around AI is an important step. And I think a lot of people will be pretty proud that Europe is taking the lead here on this. So what does this new program mean for European startups and for those of us working in tech? So I think there's a lot of things to be excited about with this new strategy. Firstly, is the creation of data spaces that facilitate data sharing seamlessly across borders. Big data is the real integral ingredient that AI depends on and something that many were concerned GDPR would challenge. So startups will also benefit from greater investment in AI with expected expenditures of at least 20 billion euros in public and private investment in AI research and innovation spending planned from now until the end of 2020. So that's a lot of money really soon. And startups can look forward to increasing investment in this space and also supporting of venture capital um, for, for their research and innovation purposes. Similarly, I'm also interested to see how the development of these AI innovation hubs will work out because greater connectivity across Europe is really what moves these technologies forward. And I'm looking forward to seeing which ecosystems will really benefit from this investment. So overall, really exciting news here. And I look forward to seeing how this continues to develop. Um, Really, I think, important leadership from the European Commission on AI. Um, And it's something that I think we all can be very proud of. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. And this also echoes a lot of things that I heard uh, earlier this year when I went uh, to Finland uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, There was this interesting uh, tour put together uh, by the authorities uh, to actually see uh, the country's effort on becoming a sort of a thought leader within Europe uh, in uh, AI and in particular in the ethics of AI. So I guess this is an important topic. I'm still, I'm still afraid that I don't really understand everything about it. Uh, but uh, I do feel that the more uh, we talk about it and uh, the more we kind of explain things uh, for, to everyone, uh, the better it's going to be. Yeah, so so the discussion and investment and kind of cultivation of artificial intelligence across Europe is really uneven. And that's what this strategy really tries to bring all countries kind of up to speed and facilitate this data sharing and also conversation around some of these issues. I think a lot of people kind of have a similar takeaway like you that it don't understand all of the issues. There are multiple issues involved and it's really important to kind of bring those forward so we have a chance to discuss them and understand them. Um, and I think that's what, what this strategy really, really tries to, tries to do. I wish they didn't have the word blockchain in it. I was really surprised to see that in there also, because it kind of came out of nowhere. It's like, okay, we're going to support scale up initiatives on AI and blockchain. I was like, wait, where did that come from? But they are, they are connected definitely. And you can see examples of how blockchain would work in this scenario. But yeah, it's definitely in there. <laughs> 
So, okay, enough, <laughs> enough blockchain. Uh, we are going actually to be back to the topic of uh, blockchain and crypto in the recommendation uh, part. Uh, but for now, we have a great uh, interview uh, lined up uh, for the podcast. It is a conversation held by Robin Wouters, our founding editor, with Yaroslav Zhnyuk, the co-founder and the CEO of PetCube. And PetCube is a Ukrainian uh, company, a pet camera company that was founded uh, a few years ago, and they are now headquartered in the United States. Uh, full disclosure, I have known Yaroslav probably for about uh, 10 years. We used to organize a small conference together. We used to play football together. And I'm really happy uh, that uh, he is being featured on our podcast. So go ahead, uh, listen to uh, to the interview. It's uh, really interesting. If you are not familiar with PetCube, this is definitely worth uh, checking out. If you are familiar with PetCube, there are some interesting updates that you definitely also should hear. And uh, Natalie and I will be back in uh, 10 minutes with our events and recommendations. Hey, Robin Walters from Tech.eu. I'm here at the NOAA conference in London, bumping into Yaroslav, one of the founders of PetCube. Uh, what's PetCube? Hey, uh, PetCube, uh, we make home cameras for pet owners that allow you to see your pet when you're not at home and talk to them. And overall, we're connecting pets to the internet with a suite of software that we're developing. Great. Um, you've been around for how long now? About six years so far, yeah. yeah. And uh, tell me more about the company. Where do you have your offices? Yeah, so we're kind of spread, you know, sun never sets. We we have started in Ukraine and Kiev. That's where we have the largest office so far. And then we have our headquarters in San Francisco, and that's where I spend most of my time. And then we also have an office in Shenzhen in China for manufacturing. So do you still feel a European company? We had this debate earlier, but I might as well ask for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think any company that was started by uh, European founders and uh, still has operations in Europe should be considered a European company. And definitely culturally, we are much more European than, than the U.S. company, uh, at least for the way we feel ourselves internally as, as founders. Great. So tell me more about the business. How's it going? Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's been a really really interesting ride. We've started selling our hardware devices uh, about three years ago, and over the last year we've uh, made a lot of progress in software as well. The, the company have sold over two hundred thousand physical devices. People are using them a lot. Like yearly attach rate is over eighty percent, and we have an average person spending about fifty minutes per week talking to their cat or dog through PetCube. This is more time than people spend talking to their parents. This is ridiculous <laughs> and uh, something really interesting we're, we're doing on the software side now I uh, just in March we launched a PayCube care platform which provides uh, people access to exclusive deals from an, a number of amazing pet related uh, offerings like dog walking or insurance or even pet food and that thing is, is growing really well it's kind of like app store for for pet apps and then on another side we're, we're working on this uh, behavioral diagnostics technology because we're world's biggest uh, pet camera company we have the data from all those cameras that are looking at hundreds of thousands of pets so we analyze the, the data, we detect pets, and we see their behavior throughout the day and throughout months. And we can tell whenever your pet is getting sick or in the future we'll be able to tell when your pet is anxious, needs some doctor attention, needs some special training, aggressive or anything else. Um, so the company's mission is really to connect pets to the internet and give them a voice. 
it, it sounds like a good idea. It's also one of these things, like probably six years ago, um, a lot of people made fun of the idea because it's not the most intuitive uh, thing to do, right? So it, it, is that still the same mission that you had six years ago? Uh, yes, pretty much. Um, I think some of the best ideas are the ones that look silly and crazy at the beginning and uh, that, that are grounded uh, in uh, some personal need of the founders. So that's that's how the company was started. My, my co-founder, Alex, uh, wanted to see his dog when he was out of home and wanted to kind of play and interact with him. That's, that's how he created this first camera, PQ. Uh, now it's the product called PQ Play, which is a camera with a laser pointer built in. So you have a laser shining from the device and you can move that laser remotely from your mm -hmm. app um, and uh, play with your dog or cat. And another product we, we're offering is PQ Bites. It's a camera with a treat dispenser. So you can fling treats to your dog or cat and talk to them and, and see them remotely. So that that's how great great ideas get started. And when we... When we kind of have this idea for a product we ask ourselves okay is there an opportunity to build a business based on that so we looked at pet market really big market no one's innovating there digitally no one's trying to connect pets to the internet and you know if you study history of technology you see whenever one big entity gets connected uh you have amazing effects happening so uber connected cars airbnb connected apartments our goal is to connect pets to have all the data about pets and build platform based on the data so far so good yeah well, i think that's an amazing story but did you also manage to convince uh investors of the you know the good prospects of your business have you raised funding so far yeah we we have been pretty successful in raising funding uh, we've raised over 20 million dollars so far we're currently working on, on the next round of funding uh, there is um, lots of interest from strategic players like uh, pet food companies and consumer electronics companies so it's it's an exciting space and we're definitely kind of leading this digital innovation for and connectivity for pets we have been called an apple for pets which <laughs> is always funny when when people compare like that but not the worst analogy i'd say <laughs> speaking of comparisons do you uh, what's the competitive landscape look like do you have any direct competitors yet? Yeah, what we're really competing with are uh, home security cameras. So our research showed that uh, over 50% of people who buy home security cameras use that mostly to watch their pets. <laughs> and those cameras don't, don't have any specific uh, features for pets like laser or tree dispensing or software that detects your pets, software that monitors their health or anything like that. So we're competing on that ground and we really need to invest more into awareness and uh, building the brand because so far, still not many people know that there is even a category like a, a pet camera. Um, but again, like for for our business long term, we're not like we're not a hardware company. We're not a camera company per se. We're we're more of a technology company. Obviously, hardware is a very important component. It's kind of like infrastructure. It's kind of like you you need to put cell towers to actually provide the cell service. So you need to give pets that interface to go online to get connected and what we're actually building is, is almost like a smartphone for your pets it's amazing um what, what's your biggest challenge right now what's the biggest problem you're trying to solve yeah that's a good one um i, I think scaling is to put it in one word 
especially like with scaling hardware business, there are so many so many challenges. Uh, both so like our biggest market is the U.S. and there's whole kind of user acquisition uh, and kind of brand building exercise and how do you do that in a capital efficient manner. And then scaling overseas uh, requires substantial capital. Um, so China is really, really interesting market for us. In China, the pet market grew, basically doubled from $15 billion to $30 billion in the last three years, which is crazy. Like, which market doubles from 15 yeah. to $30 bill in three years? This was going on in China because of the growing middle class, and it's going to be a bigger market for pet care than the U.S. in uh, five to seven years. U.S. is like $70 billion. Um, so scaling and entering new markets is one of the biggest uh, challenges so far. Do you find it um, easier to scale with your sort of Ukrainian roots and because of the availability of talent and maybe the cost is a bit less than uh, than most countries you're active in now? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a very good comment. It, it gives you basically an unfair competitive advantage. In Ukraine, you can hire five amazing engineers for the price of one great engineer in Silicon Valley. And not only it's the, the cost thing, it's actually like, well, for, for PECU, we, we have um, somewhat of a good reputation. So let's say in Ukraine, we've been called the best Ukrainian startups for, for, for a couple of years in a row, and people really want to join the team. And so we can hire the best of the best. Uh, and then we, we're not afraid that Google or Apple or whoever will come and, and get those people from us because they don't have offices in Ukraine so far. Um, and, you know, try competing with me when, uh, you know, when, when you are a U.S. company, you deliver one feature, I deliver five features. Um, and then the same thing with China. Obviously, we have manufacturing there. Um, and uh, it just, the, the world is now so connected, so global. It just m makes sense to have specialized offices and teams in different parts of the world. And uh, if you can build a communication between those, then you'll, you'll be successful. I think that's um, in more a company. See, one of the CEO's core roles is to be kind of chief communication officer to make sure that um, team team members that are uh, communicating in, a, in an efficient manner. Great. I found this all very fascinating. Nara, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with PetQ. Thank you. Hello again and uh, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu, episode number 99. Uh, we have just discussed uh, some stories uh, from the past week in the European tech ecosystem and now it is time to move on to the event recommendations. Uh, Natalie, uh, what should we be looking forward towards? Yeah, so as we get to the end of the year, the event calendar seems to dry up a little bit, but I want to bring things back to blockchain um, with the event that I'm highlighting this week, which is held from the 12th to the 15th of December, which is the Hyperledger Global Forum, which is held in Basel, uh, Switzerland. And this event is the first public conference for contributors of Hyperledger's business blockchain technologies. Um, really bringing people together to connect, meet, and learn. So if you're a user of Hyperledger Technologies, something not to miss. And if you're looking for more things to do this month, be sure to check out the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know um, at the link in the show notes. Great. There is just nowhere to hide from blockchain. We just had one uh, story uh, related to it somehow. We are going to have one more in a little bit. But while we're on events, uh, so I'm also uh, going to 
close my traveling season uh, this week uh, with a trip to Ukraine. I will be in Kyiv uh, uh, from uh, the day this podcast goes out, from Wednesday uh, until uh, Friday. So if you are in Kyiv, uh, uh, check out the Seed Stars uh, CE Summit. It's a really interesting event. Uh, it's going to be a one-day conference on uh, Friday. If you are interested, uh, come along. I will be interviewing uh, the CEO and founder of a Ukrainian company called Macpo, Alexander Kosovan, on stage. So if this is something you're interested in, uh, check it out, uh, come along, uh, ping me, let me know, and let's have a coffee and talk. Now, moving forward uh, to the recommendation part of the podcast. Uh, so my story, uh, as I already announced two times uh, before uh, is going to be kind of uh, about uh, blockchain. So that's just a couple of days ago, I came across a feature story that is written by uh, Laurie Penny in the Breaker magazine. I've never heard of it before. And that story itself is actually very sad, I think, but it's also a great uh, pleasure to read. It's titled Four Days Trapped at Sea with Crypto Nouveau Riche. This is an <coughs> absolutely great account of uh, an actual cruise uh, in the Mediterranean Sea organized for cryptocurrency investors. This sounds like the stuff of nightmares and judging by uh, what Laurie is told, that's exactly what it was. So it's a long but great read. I encourage you to just go and read it in full. Uh, the link to the story is in the show notes. And it's not just about crypto or blockchain or Brock Pierce, who turns out to be very much involved in this scene. But there are also a few important points about inclusivity and diversity and the way women are treated in the crypto space, which are actually very much applicable to the uh, to the wider industry. So please go and check it out. If there is anything you read after this podcast, this definitely should be it. But speaker of the wider industry, I think it's actually a good moment uh, for you, Natalie, to take over and uh, tell about your recommendation of the week. Yeah. And uh, before I do that, I want to really kind of underline what Andre said about about his piece that he shared, because this is a great article and it's both at the same time horrifying and also hilarious. And she is a great writer. And I really encourage you um, to check that out. And it turns out this Breaker magazine is uh, all about blockchain, um, but they do it in a very kind of informed and critical way. So I think you might find some of their pieces very interesting. I kind of was clicking around on there and I was kind of delighted by some of the offerings they have there. A really interesting kind of take on things. Including the romance novels. Yeah, there, there's blockchain romance novels. This is something I learned really. Maybe I'll recommend that next week. <laughs> um, maybe not. But for my recommendation this week, um, I wanted to highlight Atomico and Diversity VC's toolkit on diversity and inclusion in tech, which was launched with great fanfare at Slush last week. So this is a topic that's really close to my heart as I spent a number of years of postgraduate research working on gender representation in politics and business. So it's something I have a bit of experience with, and I was really glad to see um, this come out. And firstly, what it is. So it's a toolkit and backgrounder for tech founders to consider when working to develop strategies for supporting diversity and inclusion in their organizations. So it's a really big document. I think it's about 73 pages. Um, you can read it either online or via PDF. I would suggest reading the PDF version because the online interface is not that easy to use. 
So I think the ethos and the goal of the guide is really great. And what's wonderful about it is it helps to really advance these issues and encourage anyone um, to talk about this more. And I appreciate Diversities VC's leadership in this area as they're really promoting this conversation in European tech. And this toolkit gives founders a guide on how to think about these issues. So the early part of the document is great in that it helps to outline some of the differences between diversity and inclusion, which I think sometimes um, are often confused, and really make the point that these are qualities that as a company, you should consider at the very beginning. So really from inception, you need to put this kind of at, at, at the heart of your organization. But I think overall, they can make a much stronger case for why diversity and inclusion matter. Um, there's a ton of research on this, but... I think for the most part, people understand that it's important, but you can give some more reasons why. The second part of the toolkit helps walk founders through developing a diversity and inclusion strategy. But here, I think their approach is a bit challenging, and I could see this being um, overwhelming for founders because there's a lot of information and the organization is, is somewhat difficult. So it's worth a look, but if you would like an alternative approach, I, I'd like to point you to Project Include, which is from the U.S., and they have 14 different recommendations that align on key themes that you as manager, coworker, or founder can incorporate into your organization to really put diversity and inclusion at the heart. So it's simple, easy to follow, and what's really great about it is they indicate how, when, and why you should incorporate these different practices so it's very clear and straightforward and super simple. For example, one concept such as investing in sponsorships, that is investing in your employees' careers and advocating for them, they highlight specific ways in how to do that. So you're not reinventing the wheel. Many of these themes are picked up in Diversity VC's document as well, but it's a bit more difficult to use. And something I appreciate about their piece, though, is that they say it will be a living document and continually updated which I think is great because, for example, they have a number of links and things in their appendix that really aren't explained elsewhere. So I think it's something that will continue to grow and build and be better. And so I really appreciate Diversity VC and Atomico for taking leadership on this issue. Um, and I look forward to seeing it develop further. Yeah, I've taken a look at this one as well. Uh, looks like a great, uh, great start. Uh, to say the least, uh, uh, for something in uh, this area. So I'm pretty happy that uh, this is happening as well. So I guess if we just uh, uh, keep checking this one, maybe quarterly, uh, it's uh, going to grow and it's going to get even more uh, detailed and uh, even more <laughs> applicable to any company in the European tech space. So this is time to wrap it up. This is it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. Don't miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for Tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Uh, this will help others find it and it will mean the world for us. Tell everyone you know for whom it would be relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU on Facebook and LinkedIn. And please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions. Uh, you can do it at uh, Andri at tech.eu and Natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Andre. And just for all you listeners, next week is our podcast 100. And something's really special is coming next week. So make sure you stay tuned for that one. Yep. Brace yourselves. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. And we are going to talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.